The meat of live is Christ. The meat to die is gain. Every moment in between, there'll be joy and there'll be pain. I can't worry about the future or change a thing about my past. I've got this moment to believe and I'm gonna make it last. I am filled to be emptied. This is Pastor Michael Rogers from The Jar at 702 H Street Northeast in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. So we are excited because all of our Sundays up to this point have led to this Sunday. We, we really believe that everything that we have been teaching over the past uh, nine months has really been leading up to this moment where we get to talk to you about what it means to be disciple makers. So those of you who have been with us for a while have heard this a lot, and I'm not going to go deep into it today, uh, but we are filled to be emptied, and we took that word filled, and we gave ourselves six questions that a disciple maker asks of himself or herself every day. The first one is, am I fervently pursuing my faith? The second one is, am I invested in God's mission? The third one is, am I learning how God uniquely shaped me to accomplish that mission? The fourth one then starts going from how he fills us to how we empty for others. So the fourth one is, am I loving the person in front of me? And last week, we ended a series on, am I expecting God to move in real life? Which requires the Spirit. It requires the Spirit for that to happen. He, he, it is His great delight to move through us, through His Spirit, to reach the world. So the last question then, the D in filled, is, am I discipling someone? Because if I am not discipling someone, I'm missing an opportunity to see the blessing and the grace of God. As we explore this question, this tension, over the next five weeks, we just realize that the best way for us to explain it to you, and this will eventually be a five-week class that we have everybody go through to begin what we call our shield groups, and we'll talk about that another time, um, but it, really what we're asking people to do is stand firm in the faith, to make sure that everything that we do helps us to stand firm in the faith. And as we do, we are able to disciple others out of standing firm. So we took that word stand and we broke it down into five different pieces. And we will talk about each one over the next five Sundays. The first thing that we must do if we want to be disciple makers is we must submit to God. If we do not submit to God, everything else we try will be done under human power and will not be enough. We must have divine power in order to accomplish what God is asking us to accomplish. And we cannot make disciples on our own. It must be his spirit that moves. We must submit to God. That is the S. The T is to talk about life. Too often we are afraid to be vulnerable and to actually tell people what's happening in our hearts and in our minds. Um, and that we are, we're struggling with the idea of who can I trust and how can I trust them. But for us to truly be disciple makers, we must be willing to share our lives with the people that we are coming in contact with and to have the patience to listen when they are sharing theirs. So the T is to talk about life, and we'll talk about that next week. Then the third one, the A, is to assess each other. Now this is the scary part, isn't it? 
Um, a lot of times when we think of accountability, and remember that our three core values is joy, accountability, and relationship. So accountability, this is where that happens. Or I'm sorry, did I say accountability? I'm sorry, authenticity. Our A is authenticity, and that requires accountability, which means that for us to be our real selves in Christ, we must be accountable to each other, and so we have to assess each other and just see where, he, where we are. I know Pastor Steve and I do this to, together very often. We will get together, we'll have a conversation where we just say, where are you, where am I? Here's what I'm dealing with, here's what you're dealing with. Let's, let's pray for each other, let's help each other out. Um, even as pastors, there are weeks where we are, where we are guilty. <laughs> and we need a savior. And we also need a brother who will walk with us in that. So assessing each other is an assessment of encouragement, not an assessment of judgment. Right. We're not coming to them and saying, how dare you do that thing? Instead, we're coming along beside our brother, which a word for the, the spirit is paraclete in the Greek, which means to come alongside. Think of it as you sprained your ankle and someone came along and put their shoulder up under your underarm so that they could be your crutch while you walked over to the side to sit down. That's what it means for the Holy Spirit to come alongside us, and that's what we need from each other sometimes. Sometimes you're broken and sometimes I'm broken, and sometimes we're broken together, and if we lean in together, we look like a three-legged race, but we make it to the other side because that's where Christ meets us. So we assess each other. The third one is that we nourish each other. God is going to give me a word for you, and God is going to give you a word for me. And the last thing we want is for you to get this sense that our job as pastors is to always have the word and always be the ones to give. And that's why we ask you for testimonies. We ask you for praises. And we ask you to share your prayers is because we want opportunities for you to be able to speak into our lives too. So one of the things we do different here at The Jar is as we're teaching, if something comes to mind, raise your hand. If, if you have a question, raise your hand. We believe that God moves inside of that just as much as anything that we have prepared. And we have seen it happen where sometimes someone comes up with something and asks a question that we didn't mean to cover, but it's exactly what was needed by the congregation at that time. So, so our hope is that we nourish each other, not that we wait for someone to feed us. And if you think about it, that's how life is, right? We help each other and we help to feed each other and we do what we can. Sometimes I have to feed myself. But sometimes I'm called on to help you because you need that nourishment and vice versa. Nourishment is my favorite part. Yes, that's right. Nour like nourishment food. is awesome. That's right. Eating is good, right, Steve? Eating is good. <laughs> that's a, for those of you who don't know, the 11th commandment is the pastor shall get a tithe of all fellowship meals. Yes. So there you go. Um, then the last one, the D, is defend each other's holiness. And what I mean by that is that we, we think of the people around us who are part of the church. Remember, Paul never wrote a letter to the sinners of Ephesus, to the sinners of Colossae, to the sinners of Corinth. No, he wrote to the saints. And we are all saints because of what he did, not because of any extra thing that we did. And because of that, we can rely on him. And we can defend each other's holiness and say, Mike, you are holy and I am holy if we believe in Jesus. Steve, you are holy and I am holy if we believe in Jesus. But sometimes you're standing firmer than I am, and sometimes I'm standing firmer than you are. And we defend each other's holiness by reminding each other of that. So sometimes we just need that encouragement, don't we? Sometimes we need someone who is willing to say, hey, don't you think it's time to come home? 
Don't you think it's time to stand in his presence? Don't you think it's time for us to pray about that thing that's worrying you? Don't you think it's time for us to be holy together? And that holiness is just about separateness. It doesn't mean we're perfect. What it means is everything that we're thinking and doing is leading to him. And so we want to do that. So the first thing that we're going to talk about today is submitting to God. And so we always uh, start with a considered question. This is a chance for you to just think it for yourself. You don't have to share it with anybody. Just think inside yourself. What is your answer to the following question? We'll give you about 10 seconds. And it's this. Is it difficult for you to recognize authority? All right, so today we're going to look at some passages that show us what it means to submit, who we are submitting to, how to submit, and the reward that comes with submitting. So what does it mean to submit? That word submit, especially in our culture, has, kind of has a bad condemnation, right? Like we, we've taken it, that word submit, and used it um, in a worldly definition. Um, and the worldly definition really is not very fun, right? It's putting up with, it's, it's bearing with something that you really don't want to put up with. It's all of these negative things. Um, and even in the church, there have been leaders who have used that word yes. in a not good way. And if that has happened to you, I want to apologize to you for that. Yes. Um, On behalf of the church, please forgive us. Because that is not what... That's not how God sees this word. And so we're going to talk about that today. But even if it's God's definition of submitting, we don't really like the idea of submitting to others. <laughs> That's right. Right? That's right. Submission in sports is considered a loss. Submission to our boss sometimes creates resentment and anger. Submission to people in power can be uncomfortable. It can be embarrassing. And submissions mean, submission means we release our power, our self, and our pride, and that can put us in a vulnerable position. But for a disciple of Jesus, to answer his call is to submit to him. We've talked about the call to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, yes. and how to love others as Christ loved us and why. But the call to submit, to allow someone else to be in charge, it is important to know the one to whom we submit to. You know, we can stand up here all day long and say, you need to submit to God, but if you don't fully understand who he is, what good does it do? Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. Because submission is something you have to choose to do. It's something that you have to decide that that's what you're going to give your allegiance to. That's right. Right? That's right. And, and the, the thing is, that what the passage we're going to look at today is James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Um, and the reason we're going to look at that is because God, it, verses 7 through 10, James <laughs> talks about what it yes. means to submit to God. But in order for us to get there, we have to have a foundation set up. We have to understand what's happening inside of James's letter. So we're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. So while you're doing that, I'm just going to talk a little bit about what's happening in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is my least favorite chapter of the whole Bible because it talks about controlling your tongue, and I really don't want to. I would really rather tell people exactly what I think and get away with it and have them just live with it. And uh, all out of <laughs> Christian love, of course. Of course. Um, but uh, he, said, he talks about taming the tongue, tongue and how important that is. 
And then he, he ends that talking about wisdom and that wisdom brings peace. So if we don't tame the tongue, we have a hard time getting wisdom. If we don't get wisdom, we're going to have a hard time having peace. And he ends in chapter 3, verse 17 by saying, But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, here's the, here's the thing is, we all want peace, but we all want someone else to do the work that creates peace. And James notices that. So in chapter 4, verse 1, since he's been talking about peace, he starts using, even though peace in the Bible is talking about wholeness, not about lack of confrontation, James uses this as an opportunity to use military terms to help us to see what's happening inside the church at the time. So... Just in case we thought that all the struggles in the church were brand new and there was something wrong with the church today that was not wrong in the first century church, listen to James in chapter 4, verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you, it says in the New uh, Living Translation, which is a perfect way to say it. The quarrels there, the, the, uh, the root of that is polemo, which is where we get polemics. That's a word we don't use very often, but what it means is talking about religion and politics. They were fighting over doctrine, and they were fighting over politics. Does that sound at all like the church today? Just a little bit? Matter of fact, so much so that those quarrels were turning into physical con confrontations, which is what the word fights is. So what is causing you to bicker and argue over things like you, there's a couch in the foyer and I want it moved. The color of the carpet is wrong. We have ch chairs instead of pews or pews instead of chairs. We're doing contemporary music instead of hymns or vice versa. We're, all of these things we're struggling with, all of these little bits and pieces. Uh, should women be in the pulpit? Should they not? Should the spirit be uh, moving today and doing healing or should it not? Should, the, should baptism happen before, after, during, or after salvation? All of these things that we're bickering and arguing about. And we get to the end of that uh, conversation and we often end up in at least verbal fisticuffs. And he says, what's causing all of that? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? The desire, actually, the, the, the root of that is where we get the word hedonism, which is the, the belief that you only live once and so you should get all the pleasure you can out of the world. And so what he's saying is, isn't it because you just want to be the one in charge? Isn't that really what's happening? You want what you want when you want it. And if you don't get it, you're going to make a mess of things. He's, and he says in verse 2, you want what you don't have, so you scheme to kill and get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war and take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. As a matter of fact, even when you do ask for it, even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what you want because it will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Now, this act, the actual word there means you adulteresses. And James was talking to the men in the church. And he's talking and he calls them adulteresses. So he's, it's like he's saying, not only are you being a woman, you're being a woman who is not very faithful and true to the husband that you were given. That is a way to speak to Jews that would almost be like an insult, but that is a way to speak to the church to remind the church that she has one husband. 
And if we are letting anything lead us besides God, we are being adulteresses as the church. And too often we get into a mess that way. He says, you adulteresses, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Another way to say that is alienates you from God. Don't you know that that's true? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And you're thinking, now, what does this have to do with me in the church? Well, when we get to the place where we want to be so relevant to the world that we've forgotten who the church is for, we put ourselves in a position where we're friends with the world and not friends with God. When we decide that we want what we want when we want it, everybody in the world says that. What he's saying is what we should be doing is saying, what does God want? And let's give him that. And if we give him that, we should be okay. Everything should work out. Turns out that the, the scripture supports contemporary music and hymns. Turns out that nowhere in scripture does it say that pews or chairs are better. Turns out that it won't matter if you have a couch in the foyer or not. If Jesus is being preached, people will get saved. Amen. Amen. Yes. And because that's true, we should stop bickering and arguing and instead start thinking about what God wants. And then James says, he's a little cheeky here. It's kind of salty, James. I like James. Yeah. He's just straightforward. Like he, says, he says, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. What actually the Greek there says, the spirit that he gave us that's going to dwell in us permanently settles into us and stays there. He's jealous that that spirit should not coincide with letting anybody else be God or anything else be God. So instead of worrying about your wants and your needs and your desires, start thinking about what he wants for you and give him that. In other words, submit to God. And then he says, and just in case you were wondering, this is not about a legal thing. This is not about following the law. This is not about obedience. He says, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, literally stands against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, so when he says God opposes the proud, what it literally means is that he sets a standing army against the proud and he will fight against them all the time. But he is quite willing to offer grace to anyone who will humble themselves and stop acting out of pride. And he says all of that so that he can get to verse 7. So here's how I would sum that up. We fight because we all want to be the one in charge. And if we could just be the one in charge, we would fix the church. And the world is looking at us and saying that is no different than what's happening at work or the gym or the bar or at home. Why would I want to be a part of that? So that goes along with what I was saying, which is that definition of submission, right? We don't like that word in so many ways. But here's the thing. Submission is choosing to stand under someone's authority. And like I said before, we're going to talk about what, who, how, and the reward of that. So let's talk about the who. Let's go back to the who. Okay. And there's a, a, a passage in 2 Samuel. You can turn to it if you want to. You don't have to. But it's in chapter 5 and going into chapter 6. And there's a story of victory and celebration in there. David has been anointed or appointed king of Israel, starting in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And he has been chosen from the fields 
a long time ago. And now Saul, who is the king before him, is dead. And David will be allowed to be king. And David's first move as appointed king is to move the, or bring the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the presence of God, back into Jerusalem Amen. Um, where it belongs. And so when we go into the, the sixth chapter of Second Samuel, it goes and talks about how the people were just celebrating heartedly. They were just enthusiastic, ecstatic. They were joyful, and they just were so glad that Israel had a king that they could love and whom they could submit to. But if we go back and look at verse 2 of chapter 5, we see some insights into David's relationships with God's people. In 2 Samuel 5, 2, it says, You will shepherd, this is God speaking to David, You will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. Right. So here's the thing. The idea of shepherding, it just came naturally to David. right? Mm -hmm. Those of you who know the story of David, who've grown up in the church, maybe you haven't. But David, he shepherded his father's sheep. So when God says, you will shepherd my people of Israel, right? David, you're going to do that. He completely understood that. Um, shepherding is all about feeding the lambs, grooming them, delivering new lambs, bringing them to good water and pastures, teaching them to stay together, going off after wandering the lost ones, <laughs> right? And protecting the sheep in the field at night. And in the same way... And we've talked about that about this here at the jar. We we spent a whole series on this. Mm -hmm. But in the same way, Jesus is our shepherd. And as our shepherd, Jesus can be trusted to care for us. And this is how. One, he watches over us. Shepherds keep a wide open eye, constantly searching the horizon for the possible approach for enemies, from floods, from wolves, and from other humans. And in the same way, Jesus knows we have an enemy that is prowling around like a wolf in the night. And so his, he watches over us. Mm -hmm. We are his sheep. We are his lambs. And he does that. Second thing, he guides us. I don't know if you all know this, but sheep can't go to places by themselves. <laughs> they can't start out in the morning in search of pasture and then come home at evening time. They have, sheep have no sense of direction. I don't know how much y'all know about sheep, but they, they have no sense of direction. They're worse than me. So uh, the greenest pasture may only have be a few miles away, but the sheep left to themselves cannot find it. Where the shepherd leads, the sheep will go. That's right. Second, this is how Jesus is our shepherd. He heals us. It is not uncommon for there to be sheep who are lame and ailing, and the shepherd will give more care to that particular sheep. A shepherd is called to be a doctor and a nurse. Sometimes physically, but sometimes spiritually. That's how Jesus is our shepherd. He heals us. Number four, he provides for us. The feeding of a sheep is essential duty of the shepherd. Sheep cannot feed themselves nor water themselves. They must be led to the water in the pasture like I talked to you or said a while ago. Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, and one of the grounds of his claim is that he will feed us if we ask him to. Yes. He will take care of us. He seeks us out, and he saves us. That's what the shepherd does. Sheep easily get lost. I don't know if you figured out by now, number five and six, that sheep are not the smartest. They're not the sharpest tools in the shed, Right? And they easily get lost. And his sheep will keep his nose to the ground following the strip of greenest grass 
little by little separating himself from his companions until at last his companions are completely out of sight and the poor isolated animal doesn't even know where he is. Boy, that sounds familiar, right? Yeah. We find something we like yeah. and we put our nose to the ground and we get locked in on something we shouldn't get locked in on, but boy, it tastes good. <laughs> oh, it looks good. Oh, the grass is greener on that side. And yeah. even when we get full, we just keep and eating. And we just keep we going, just keep right? Following. And what happens? We slowly stray from the rest of the flock because we're so zoned in on that little piece of grass. Yeah. And right? what, are, what are the wolves looking for? Sheep that are isolated, sheep that are away from the shepherd, sheep that are fat and sassy, can't move. Easy pickings. And once the sheep realizes he's lost, he rushes around without direction. In other words, he panics. <laughs> he panics. A lost sheep does not get home. And this describes Jesus in so many ways. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus says, What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them? does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. Amen. In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. And I feel like I'm, I'm supposed to insert mm -hmm. something here. While the shepherd is away, the 99 tend to make a mess of things. Mm -hmm. while, while Jesus is going looking for the one, we, we, if we have been found, we're probably part of the 99. And if we find ourselves outside of the presence of Jesus, it is so much easier for us to make a mess of the church so that by the time Jesus is back with that one, he's got to do some uh, rebuking and and some loving and some correcting and some corralling and that kind of thing. Now, truth is that Jesus is never absent from the church, so don't get me wrong. It, it just means that sometimes we forget as the 99 that it is important for us to still listen for the shepherd. Right. And we here at the JAR very much believe joy is the first letter of JAR. Yes. And so you all who've been with us know that we're, we're, we've done eight baptisms Yes. in the nine months, ten months now that we've been open here in this building. Yeah. But we are praying for number nine. Number nine. We are for ready nine. for number nine. Yes. We're yeah. ready right over here yep. to, to um, bring someone into that pool that the shepherd has brought to us over his shoulder. Yeah. And then lastly, he lays down his life for us. The shepherd would lay, at night lay down in the gate physically to protect the sheep from wolves coming into the sheepfold. He literally puts his life on the line for the sheep. And Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I know my own and my own know me. Be a disciple. So being a disciple of Jesus, you're going to submit to the gentle shepherd of our souls. Yes. That's who we submit to, the shepherd, because he does all of those things for us. And that's why we submit to him. Sheila Walsh, Walsh sorry, Sheila Walsh has this... Um, in her book, she, ha she talks about what's called bummer lambs. <laughs> and I don't know if this is where we get the word bummer. I don't know. That's a good question. But anyways, it's called bummer lambs. And I want to read it to you guys because it's just so powerful. Every once in a while, an ooh will give birth to a lamb and reject it. You. You, sorry. You. Sorry, that was my northern there. Yes. 
coming out. There are many reasons she may do this. If the lamb is returned to the... Now you got me questioning myself. You. You. E-W-E is a you. If the lamb is returned to you, the mother may even kick the poor animal away. Once an ewe rejects one of her lambs, she will never change her mind. These little lambs will hang their heads down so low that it looks like something's wrong with its neck. And their spirit is broken. As a mama that breaks my heart. These lambs are called bummer lambs. Unless the shepherd intervenes, the lamb will die, rejected and alone. And so do you know what the shepherd does? He takes that rejected little one into his home, hand feeds it and keep, keeps it warm by the fire. He will wrap it up with blankets and hold it to his chest so the bummer lamb can hear his heartbeat. Once the lamb is strong enough, the shepherd will place it back in the field with the rest of the flock. But the sheep, that sheep, never forgets how the shepherd cared for him when his mother rejected him. When the shepherd calls for the flock, guess who runs to him first out of the whole flock? That's right, the bummer sheep. He knows his voice immediately. It is not that the bummer lamb is loved more. Right. It just knows intimately the one who loves it. Yes. It's not that it is loved. It's it, it, not that it's loved more. It just has experienced that love, one on one. So many of us are bummer lambs, rejected and broken, but Jesus is the good shepherd. He cares for our every need and holds us close to His heart, so we can hear His heartbeat. We may be broken, but we are deeply loved by the shepherd, and that is who we submit to. So when we say submit to God, we mean submit to the, the one who would do this for us, that holds us close to his heart to the point where we know his voice. That's who we submit to. Now you might be thinking that if that's the case and that's what this is all about, that we have these like three to five points of how you submit. There's actually only one point to submitting. It's really actually very simple. Uh, so we talked about what submission is. We talked about who we're submitting to. So how we submit is very simple. Choose every day to follow under the authority of Jesus. It's simple, but it's not easy. Those are two different things. And every day we have to wake up. And uh, last week when we talked about the armor of God, one of our uh, congregation members in Alberto was talking about it and he said you know if you get up in the morning and you put on all your clothes and you think of them as the armor of God you start every day putting on your shirt your the breastplate of righteousness put it on a ball cap that's your your helmet of salvation you're yeah maybe got to put a belt on your jeans you got to the belt of truth um you put on your shoes you've got the shoes of the, the feet of the gospel of peace um, and if you're doing that every day, then you have a better chance of submitting to God through the day because you have already armed yourself for the day to do that through him. That is a simple idea. It's pretty cool, isn't it? But it's still not easy. You are going to find that there are times through the day where you've got to refocus and put yourself back under his authority and if you don't, then you're going to find that it gets easier and easier to find that patch of green grass that Carrie was talking about and follow it instead. And so it's not easy, but it is simple. 
And so that's why a lot of pastors talk about memorizing scripture. They talk about building in prayer times. They talk about times with the word. They talk about uh, taking a moment uh, every once in a while to fast and to, to concentrate on God. It's because when we are fervently pursuing our faith in God, we are putting ourselves in the position to remind ourselves to submit. So one of my favorite passages, I think it's from Psalm 18, but it's been a while since I looked at it because I care more about what the word says than I do where it is. <laughs> but it says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And each time that I get distracted, I will repeat that in my mind. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, because that pretty much covers, that was going to cover my actions. If I'm thinking right, I'm feeling right, and I'm speaking right, I'm probably going to be acting right. And so it's simple, but it's not easy. But here is the beauty of it, and this is what we want to really focus on, is that there's such reward for it. And that's what James 4, 7 through 10 is about, is the reward of submitting to God. Right, so let's take a look at James 4, starting in verse 7. We're going to go back to that. So it says, So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided, or that word can also mean double-minded, between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. And let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. So James makes it clear that God has great blessings planned for us, right? Blessings that only he can give if we submit to him. Right. So the first one is the devil will flee. In military world, I work with veterans all the time, and in military world, I'm learning more and more from them, but there's definitely a brotherhood there, and they have their own culture and their own language as veterans, um, and it just fascinates me. But here's the thing. The military, no matter what it is, no matter what branch it is, depends on the chain of command. Right. Each rank knows its place. Each submits to the officers above it. The private submits to the sergeant. The sergeant submits to the lieutenant. Lieutenant to captain. Captain to major. Major to colonel. And colonel to general. Ask any veteran if the chain of command breaks, the enemy doesn't flee. As a matter of fact, the soldiers are without a leader, and they're the ones who will flee. The enemy picks them off one by one. Right. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We're engaged in the fiercest battle of all. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil yes. in the heavenly realms. So James urges us in verse 7, Submit yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Yes. I think that's pretty awesome. We have that power. God has given us that. To say, devil, behind me. Because what, the authority's what's the been new, given to me. What's the new t-shirts? Not today, Satan? Not today. Not today. Not today. Yeah. But then notice how James continues, right? He says in verse 8, come close to God and God will come close to you. This is the second blessing. We have God on our side right next to us as we're fighting that battle. 
as we submit to him. But how do we come near to him? Where do we encounter God, right? So the night before Jesus' death, he told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's in John uh, chapter 14. And only through Jesus do we come near to God. For Jesus is our God in the flesh. And a little later, if you go into that story later that night, same night, it says, if you remain in me and in my words, my words will remain in you. So we meet Jesus in his word. So come near to God and he will come near to you. Doesn't mean we meet him in the forest. Doesn't mean we meet him in a, a quiet garden or in a dream or through technology. Those things don't bring us closer to God in and of themselves. They may be a conduit or a way for you to take time and be still with God. So I'm not saying never go out to the woods and pray, right? I'm not saying use your don't use your YouVersion app to get closer to God. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, that's just a conduit. It's a way to take time and be still with God. But really, what is Jesus saying? He's saying the way that you come close to me is through my word. Know me and understand me and know what I said. There's, okay. a, there's a passage in 2 Peter that talks about knowing Jesus, and it doesn't use the word, the normal Greek word, gnosis. It uses epignosis. And epignosis means it's like uh, the dartboard, and you're throwing darts, and you're trying to hit the bullseye, but it's the center point of the bullseye. You hit it so much in the center that it's directly in the center. That's epi. So what it's saying is you know that person so well, you know the very center of them. You know the heart of them. You know everything about them. And that's the knowledge of Jesus that frees us. Mm -hmm. And so the more we know about him, the more we can uh, understand him, the closer we get to him. And as we draw closer to him, he then draws closer to us. It's almost like he's being a gentleman and he's waiting. He's waiting to see our effort. It's not, it's not dependent on our effort. He's still going to reach for us anyway. Right. But that drawing close, that understanding of the nearness and the presence of God is going to come more and more as you make the effort to draw near to him. And he will meet that and double it. Yeah. One of my other favorite stories, I'd encourage you to read it, is in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And it is the story of young Samuel when God calls him. Yes. In the middle of the night. I love that story. Yes. And come near as young Samuel did. He said, speak for your servant is listening. God comes to Samuel in the middle of the night. He's a yes. young boy. And he says, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel recognizes that it's God. And he says, speak for your servant is listening. I love that story. So submit to his word. That's how we come near to God. Yes. So armed, we're submitting to his word and we're committing and we're armed with his word as a sword, the sword of the spirit. And it says, like it says in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay. And then lastly, he'll lift us up in honor. You missed one. Did we, I miss one? We will be clean to okay. sin. So oh, he yes. talks about being cleansed. And if you notice, he says that basically what it, it sounds like what he's saying is stop being so happy. And he starts talking doom and gloom. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be happy. You should be mourning. You shouldn't be uh, in the bright light of day. You should be in the doom and gloom. This, this is terrible. But what he's really saying here is recognize that the things you've been doing have been keeping you from God. And that should break your heart. He's not saying stay there. What he's saying is until you recognize that you are the one that has moved away, you will have a hard time letting God draw near. 
But the minute you realize you're the one that has been moving away and you say, God, I know that I'm the one that's been doing it. All I need to do is just admit that to you. And he then immediately turns to you. He's immediately right there. And he says, oh, good, because you were double-minded for so long. You remember we talked about the mind, suke? So to be double-minded is to have two identities. It's like to have a split personality. To be double-minded by sin is to have a split personality. And he says, I'm going to give you your full, true identity, the authentic you. And there is where your joy is. And there is where our relationship is. So the minute you say, God, I'm sick of it, I'm going to turn to you. He says, man, I've been waiting for you, son. I've been waiting for you, daughter. I couldn't be more excited than right now. Right. And God gave this to me when I was, he just, I wrote it down because I, it just, I felt like we were supposed to say this, but whether it's for somebody here today or on the radio or podcast, but when we talk about coming near to God, there's some of you that may think, well, you don't know what I've done. Yeah. You don't know what I've been through. Yeah. You don't know what my past is, what I'm thinking of right now, what's happening in my life. You don't know that. And you're telling me I'm supposed to get close to God and I'm supposed to get into his word and find out who he is and submit to him as my shepherd. But you have no idea what I've done. And James knew this as well. And that's why in verse 8 and 9, he basically tells us how to wash our hands clean and how to purify our heart. In that verse 8 and verse 9, right? When he says, he says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done, and let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Look at that for what he's he's saying. He's not he's saying he's not saying stay in that spot. He's saying recognize that's right. that that's what's keeping you from being close to God. Okay? And Jesus didn't come for the perfect person. He didn't come for somebody who's got it all together. Right. That's not why he came here. Because the truth is, there's not one single person on this planet that's perfect, that has a perfectly pure heart. The only one that was, that was able to do that was Jesus. He came for everyone because we all miss the mark. Yes. We all sin and miss the mark. And that's why he comes. But James doesn't leave us in verse 8 or 9, right? He could have ended there in the gloom and doom. Oh, just confess and... and Admit that you don't have it all together and that you don't feel like you can get close to God. But James doesn't leave us there because God is good. He'll tell us, you know, hey, I love you. This is what you need to work on. This is what you need to do. He'll tell us that because he's, a, he's our Abba. He's our daddy. He'll tell us that, but he doesn't leave us there. Right? There's always joy that follows it. So verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. And what's it say? He will what? What's it say? Lift you up. He will lift you up. He lifts lifts you up out of the gloom and the muck. He lifts you up and washes you clean, clean through your faith in Jesus and your submission to him. When you say, I can't do this anymore. I need you, God, to help me. I submit to you. I'm going to let you be a part of my life. I'm going to let you lead me in my life. And when you do that, you don't stay down here anymore. Yes, right. You don't stay down anymore in the hole. 
he reaches down and he lifts you up out of that hole. And that's what James is saying here. So rather than worldly laughter and joy, which fails us every time. Now, I'm not saying we can't have joy while we're living on this earth. We can have good times and we can have joy and we can have happiness and we can have fun. But it's fleeting. The joy he's talking about is everlasting joy that not even death can silence. Right? That's the joy that James is talking about. And when we submit to God and we're down in the hole and we, can't, we feel like we can't come near to him, he reaches down, like I said before, and he lifts us out of that hole. The moment we say, Daddy, come get me out of this hole. I've told this story before. I'm going to share it real yes. quick. God just yes. gave it to me, and I've shared this before, but I'm going to share it again. When I was five years old, we lived out in a, a farmhouse that we rented. Yes. 1977, the blizzard of 77 hit Missouri. I was the last little one. I was in kindergarten, and my on the bus route, I was the last baby to get off that bus in the route every day. They let school out early, but it didn't matter. The blizzard just slammed the Midwest, okay? Well, the farmhouse we lived on had a real long path that went back into the farmhouse and then there was the barn on the left. My mama and daddy were already home. My mama was watching for me to get off the bus. The wind, I remember, it was so cold and just blowing everywhere. And my little five-year-old self, I get off the bus and I come around the front of the bus and I start heading to the house. But the problem is the snow had already gotten so high that I could not see the driveway anymore. And there was a ditch between like, the road like and the driveway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I started my little self all bundled up and I'm walking towards, towards the house. And instead of hitting the driveway, I hit the ditch. So when I hit the ditch, guess what happened? <laughs> I remember, and I, I remember in my little five-year-old brain, it's one of the few memories I have of that age, of looking up and snow being all around me, and I couldn't see out past the, the, the hole that I had fallen into. It was all snow, and I literally was in the snow, stuck. And I started to cry, Daddy, Daddy, help me, help me. I was scared, you know? And I remember very distinctly the sound of the storm, and I remember being stuck in my little, my little snowsuit. And I remember my daddy coming up to the hole. He was all bundled up. And he says, he said, Carrie, come on, baby. Let's go. Reached down, took my five-year-old self out of the hole, put me on his hip, and carried me all the way back to the house. Yes. Like on that little footprint in the sand. Yes. You only see one little footprint because that's what God's carrying us. That's right. That's what God does to us when we're down that hole. And that's he, right. We give our life to Him. He brings us out of that deep. Yes, all sir. The way in and saves us and takes us forward. Amen. Yes, that's exactly Amen. where I was going. Yeah. You know, and I just know that feeling that I had of, oh, my daddy saved me. Oh, yeah. thank God for daddy. I just want you to know that that's what we're talking about here. Yes. I cried out to my daddy. My daddy came and he pulled me out of the hole. I was stuck. I couldn't move. I couldn't budge. I couldn't see up over the hole. And so he came and lifted me up out of that hole. And that's what God can do for you today. If you're a bummer lamb <laughs> who's broken, 
who's stuck in that snow hole, in that ditch, in that valley, and you don't know how to get out. That's the Jesus that we're talking about submitting to. He loves you so much that he will not leave you there. And I want you to know something. We're, we're talking to you, and it may be that you're sitting there and you're thinking, I, I can barely be a disciple. You can't ask me to be a disciple maker. I don't have it in me. But it's the bummer lambs who hear mm -hmm. the shepherd best and are the first to respond. And because of that, just by doing that, the bummer lambs are also leading the other sheep. When the bummer lambs begin to work toward the shepherd, all the rest of the sheep look over like, oh, I guess we're supposed to be going somewhere. And before you know it, all of the healthy lambs who had mommies are following after the ones that the shepherd cared most closely for. Yes. So you do not have to have it all together to be a disciple maker. All you need is the shepherd. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Jar with Pastors Michael and Carrie Rogers. If you're a believer in Christ looking for an opportunity to learn how to be a disciple maker, come see us at 702 H Street Northeast in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Our regular gatherings start on Sundays at 4 p.m. so you can still make it to see us today. Hope to see you soon. I am filled To be empty